Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan, and hopefully in a little while, Nick Stevens. He is uh, unfortunately tied up with a weather-related power outage, so we're going to get started this episode without him. Hope he joins us in a little while. We're going to talk about the Norfolk Tides break camp roster, but first we're joined by a special guest on this episode as Director of Draft Operations, Brad Selick, joins us here on On the Verge. Brad, how are you? I'm good, Zach. Bob, how are you guys? Doing good. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. We're happy to have you on. So we're obviously a long way out from the draft, which will take place in July of this year. But where are you and your team right now in preparation? Well, you know, in terms of where we're at right now, we've done extensive work already on the candidates that we're looking at for the number one pick. We also are scouring the country for our other selections. Our second selection will be approximately around 33. We're waiting for the commission office to release the official pick listings. And then our third selection will be in the early 40s. So we've already done extensive work, you know, in deep south. That's typically the area that opens up first, Texas, California, Florida. And now we're starting to have the Midwest open up and very soon the Northeast. So we've done extensive work already. It's a long process, but we think we're in a great shape as of right now. One one feature that was introduced last year for the draft was that there was a, a combine, a player combine, and I think that's coming back for 2022. What kind of difference did that make for you guys in the evaluation process? Yeah, the combine is a great uh, feature that the commissioner's office put into place, and we got a lot out of that last year. A lot of those guys were already done with their season, so it was just one last chance to get them up. Uh, see them up close and personal. Also, uh, for us, the opportunity to actually talk with those guys extensively get to know them a little bit in an in-person interview. So we got a lot out of that process, and we're really looking forward to doing that again this year. So uh, across the Orioles system right now, there is a broad range of really advanced hitters, particularly college bats, that have come out of the last few drafts. But we've also been really intrigued by some of the pitchers you brought in with Carlos Tavera, Dylan Hyde, among others from last year. When you're scouting amateur pitchers, what kind of traits are you looking for? Absolutely. So aside from just what you're typically looking for for a pitcher, delivery, making sure that it works well, they can repeat it, they can command the fastball, locate their stuff. We also have a team of dedicated analysts, and one of their primary responsibilities is to go through and examine all the draft-eligible college pitchers, pitchers that we get extensive amounts of data on. They do a deep dive in their arsenal, look at pitch usage, sequencing, 
And, you know, I kind of like to say that we have a certain flavor that we're looking for as far as a fastball. We're looking for a fastball that has, you know, a lot of hop on it, some rise and some running action, and more or less fastballs that, you know, don't live in the dead zone or the hitter zone. Basically, we don't want those fastballs getting barreled consistently. So in addition to that, we also like guys that have power stuff, power curveball, power sliders, two plane breaks, and also change-ups that are, you know, used as a serviceable weapon. So if we're able to find something like that in a guy and checks all those boxes, we feel really good about ultimately handing that guy off to our development system and seeing just how much they can get out of their pitch arsenal. Now we noticed, and I'm sure a lot of fans have noticed that it seems like mostly position players have been going early and then pitchers a little bit later. Is that because you feel like, you know, with the player development in place and what you know you're looking for that you can find those guys later on while, you know, the more, athletes maybe the more raw talent is found earlier with the bats yeah you know i I would just say this um we typically do the you know as much research that we can on every single player regardless position pitcher or position players the one thing i will say though that is our analytics department does a tremendous job of deep diving and looking at research and trends and typically up towards the top of the draft you know pitchers are much more risky pick so if there is a position player that we feel really good about and he's there for our taking, we typically will go that direction. However, with that said, we don't necessarily just bypass pitching. We do an extensive job, you know, scouting it, researching with our analysts. And we've had a lot of pitchers that we have liked in the top few rounds, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, they're plucked right before we can take them. But, um, you know, we also do look for those guys, as you mentioned, that are extremely good athletes that can play up the middle. And, you know, if they are there, we feel really good about taking those guys. And along the same lines, it seems like since Michael Elias came over, the team has been more selective when it comes to taking high school players. But when when you have taken them, it's looked pretty good so far with the early results from like Gunnar Henderson and Kobe Mayo. What stands out for those guys that leap to the top of the list at that respective pick compared to, you know, the the college hitters sure so i think in both cases those were guys that always had loud tools and you always hear about the tools as far as the raw power grades and the arm strength grades and both those guys stood out to our scouts as far as you know the power grades the arm grades and both those guys i think also had another similarity is they got a whole lot better um, from the previous fall into the spring and it was noticeable Obviously, with Gunner, we had the entire spring to scout him extensively, and you know his stock increased dramatically, and we were ecstatic to get him where we did in the second round. Whereas Kobe, it was a little bit more difficult because of the fact that we only had four weeks to scout him, but in spring. But he was a guy that we you know did extensive research on in, in the fall uh, at Jupiter. WWBA always has a big you know showcase tournament down there, and he was one guy that you know I more or less asked all of our scouts to shadow and take a look at, and um you know basically he put in the work himself both those guys are avid workhorses and you know when you kind of see those guys take that leap forward from the previous fall into this into the spring you feel really good about their chances in a pro ball environment it appears that we can expect to see the mlb draft regularly held in july versus early june like it used to be what impact has that had on the draft and scouting process and do you think that is a more beneficial timeline or have there been some challenges with that? Yeah. So the, I guess the one thing that I'll say about that, there's always going to be an adjustment period whenever, you know, the draft data shifted and it affects the scouting calendar. So 
just to give you, you know your listeners a sense of what we go through as far as preparing for the next year's class, we start working the day after the draft ends. There's usually a showcase going on down in Florida, which has a lot of guys coming in from all over the country. And you know, because with the draft being pushed back a little bit, it also kind of overlaps with some activities that are going on with USA Baseball, whether that's the collegiate national team or um, MLB as a as a co uh, partnership with them with the PDP League. So. There is a little bit more of a juggling act. We have to be more prepared. Uh, we have to make sure that we're, you know, keeping our eyes on the guys for the following year's class, but at the same time, not ignoring, you know, the guys that are just finishing up playing or those college hitters or college pitchers that are now in the Cape, if they're looking to get more innings or more at bats. So a little bit of a juggling act. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily more difficult. It's just a little bit different in terms of how we prepare. And we also tried to do our best as far as pro coverage as well during that time with the trade deadline. So, there are a lot of moving parts, but I think we've done a very good job of staying organized and making sure that we're covered everything on all bases. So in, in the last couple of years, we've seen the Orioles go under slot with their first pick and manage to spread their bonus pool around a little bit. Is that a strategy that you tend to base on a class-to-class basis, or do you think there's a little bit more to it? Yeah, so I can shed some light on that front. First and foremost, you want to make sure that when you're in there with your scouts and your analysts that at the end of the day and when you're on the clock that you're taking the best player available for your organization that's how we function now as far as you know uh savings or going under slot that's a secondary uh you know that's a secondary proponent to that whole that whole uh process so in the case of you know are the first draft together with mike and sig with adley rutschman obviously you know there was a little bit of savings there with adley and, you know, we kind of shaped our philosophy, our focus right after taking Adley. There were a lot of shortstops that we were intrigued by that were in that class, both in the college and the high school ranks. And we ended up with Gunner, Joey Ortiz and Daryl Hernandez. So I would say ultimately that the first domino that has to fall is you have to feel comfortable with the guy that you're taking with your first overall selection. And then you more or less map out what you're going to do with the rest of your pool after you make that selection. Looking at last year's drafts, I want to talk about Colton Calder for a minute because he was such an interesting pick for a lot of us because the stats, the tools were all there, but the one thing you kept hearing was small conference. You had to be leery of you know small conference school. How did you take that to account when evaluating him? Yeah, so the one thing with Colton is one thing that I always harp on with um, our analysts, our staff, our front office, our scouts is having a history with the player. And with Colton, we saw him actually when he was a freshman, uh, I should say going into his sophomore year with Team USA out of Sam Houston State. And the one thing that really stood out to me about Colton was, I mean, you guys have talked about it. I can't rave enough about how professional his approach is, even as an underclassman in college. He's a contact bat. He works to all fields. And he'll just find a way to get on base. He's going to take his walks, and he's not going to chase very often. So... The one last thing that we were kind of waiting for for Colton to come on, especially, you know, with that Team USA, and it did his junior year was the power. And, you know, when you kind of bake in the fact that he already has a very refined approach and he's a high contact bat and he's gotten a lot stronger. I actually saw him a couple of weeks go down to Florida, put on some good weight in the lower half and the power is going to come. So to in a sense that there is some potential concern about strength, you know, of, of conference or, or opponents, but we've seen Colton, you know, perform consistently whether in that you know with team usa or previously so that really wasn't 
that big of a concern for us. I spoke with uh, John Rhodes last week for an article I wrote. And first of all, he made my job very easy, very engaging, smart <laughs> kid right there. Um, but everyone we talked to, it seems like everyone gets along the draft class. Like they have a competitiveness to them, but they also really enjoy each other's company. That seems to be just a trend we're hearing no matter who we talk to in the system. How important is, are those intangibles versus just the pure talent of these guys you're taking? Extremely important. And I will say that as far as our scouts are concerned, they do a phenomenal job getting to know these kids, getting to know these players, you know, whether that's meeting them for the first time in high school and staying on them through their college years or, you know, going to a scout day, going to talk to them a little bit and then following up with a Zoom call. So I harp, I'm a big believer in makeup. Um, I harp on it consistently. And what I always like to say is, listen, if these guys ultimately don't end up making it to the big leagues, the one reason I don't want them to make it, you know, it can't be because they don't have good makeup. So we put a lot of time into it. We do countless Zoom calls in the winter. You know, we check in on them. We kind of, we like to leave them on as much as possible as they're going through, you know, their senior year in high school or their junior year, senior year in college. But we keep tabs on them and, you know, we kind of build that relationship and, you know, I think the byproduct of, of that process is kind of what you guys have already hinted on, the fact that they have a great culture down in Florida in the player development department. Everyone gets along, but they also challenge each other. So um, our scouts do a phenomenal job, you know, vetting those guys and going through that background process. And, you know, we're going to keep doing that and hopefully we'll have the sustained success like we've already had. So, you know, right now with the first overall pick in 2022, you've got the whole class in front of you. Uh, we know that that can be a bit of an advantage. So do you feel like with this year's class in particular, it's a good position to be in? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of talent at the top. There's a lot of guys that more or less could fit that mold for that 1-1 pick. And so far through this process, we feel really good about the guys we have seen. I would say right now we're probably around six to seven names. Um, and we're going to continue to drill that down as we get closer. But we uh, we are making significant progress, and we're really excited about what we've seen thus far. There are a lot of good players out there for that number one pick, and I'm excited to see, you know, what happens over the next couple months. And ultimately, once we uh, put our heads together, our scouting department, our analysts, department, front office, ultimately to make a decision who we think is the best guy for our organization. Yeah, this year appears to be loaded with high school talent at the top of the rankings you look at outside, like Baseball America. Do you feel like you can get enough data on those guys to justify theory, theoretically taking one at 1-1 one, one versus a college guy who, you know, you have years of information on? Sure. So to kind of go a little bit more into that, um, a few years ago, you're right, that that might have been a little bit more um, detrimental for a club picking our position. But over the last three to four years, Major League Baseball has done a very good job of having events and more or less putting these guys through testing and you know, um, lots of other assessments and share that information with clubs. So we do have an extensive amount of data already collected on a lot of these guys. And a lot of these players throughout the summer also play in major league ballparks. So some of that data is accessible to us. We will look at that data in addition with everything else that we put under the microscope. So it's probably not as much as a problem as it was maybe five, six years ago. And with, um, you know, the tech and analytics boom in baseball, it's it's affected amateur, I should say, it's touched amateur baseball as well. So we feel pretty good if we do ultimately end up decide to go with a high school player. 
that we will be prepared and have enough information to make that decision. I have to imagine that this year is a little bit different than the last two years because of where we are in the pandemic. 2020, you obviously had the season shut down. 2021, there was a lot of uncertainty in the lead up that carried over to the regular season a little bit. So how much different is it this year than it has been in the last two years? <laughs> oh, man, the last two years. You know, uh, I don't think there was anything that could have prepared anyone for what we've been through the last couple of years. But um, there is a sense of normalcy now. You know, obviously the numbers have trended down and hopefully they'll stay down. And, you know, it's been about as normal as it can be for, you know, the last couple of years. You know, the last two years, we always had to keep in mind of a potential COVID outbreak. So I would refrain from sending scouts to maybe a location where there's only one or two schools and there's a three or four hour drive, uh, you know, and they have to get to another school in case things were to shut down due to a COVID outbreak. So it's been a little bit easier. Um, COVID protocols have been relaxed in a lot of places that we scout. And you know, I would just say that the bottom line for the last couple of years is we've learned more or less how to deal with and, and work under these circumstances, like everyone else for that matter. So um, I would say that it's much, much, been much, much easier to get around as far as and see players. The only thing that's been a little bit of a challenge is now everyone has had a pandemic um, fatigue and they all want to get out and travel. So rental cars have been kind of few and far between. You got to know where you're going and get them locked in or you won't have one. <laughs> so. We asked Kobe Perez this when we talked to him a couple months ago, but how would you evaluate our simplified theory that we came up with that the draft is being used to raise the floor while the international signings are more likely to raise the ceiling of the farm system? Yeah, I, I don't, I think you could roll with that. Um, I wouldn't disagree with that. I guess from my standpoint, what I like to do, or I guess my overall viewpoint of this whole thing is I just want to make sure that when our first day of draft meetings take place, that I as accurately assess and give all the information necessary to Mike and Sig, ultimately so they can make the decision on what they want to do. So I would say that that's a pretty accurate statement. But with that said, you know, we do like some upside picks if they are available. And if we can get them, you know, Gunner and Kobe Mayo and a guy like Creed Williams, who has very loud tools and more or less just needs some seasoning with our player development department. But in terms of what you said, yes, I think that's a fair statement to make. That is something I kind of wonder is what is the communication between you and the player development like on your year round basis? Because you're obviously sending your scouts out there to look at these players, but you have to know how they're going to fit into your system and have the trust in Matt Blood and his staff to get the most out of these players. So what is the communication between your teams like? Yeah, absolutely. So that has been something that I've been trying to um, get them involved as much as possible the last couple of years. And I've been really pleased with the results. Actually, right before I hopped on with you guys, we actually had a couple of of our uh, player development pitching coaches on to take a look at some amateur pitchers. So we do, you know, seek their opinion often. And it's increased dramatically actually ever since the start of the pandemic because of the fact that there was no minor league season and these guys were more or less sitting at home and, and staying in touch with the players, you know, via the phone, via the internet. And I think it's actually been an extremely beneficial process, not only for us, but also for them because they get more or less the opportunity to see, hey, this is what potentially might be coming down the chute. And then when they show up day one at Ed Smith or Twin Lakes, they know what they need to work on or know something a little bit about them already. Yeah, that makes sense. And 
changing topics again, as, as we, you know, everyone hopes that the rebuild starts to turn the corner over the next couple of years, how will picking later in each round affect the team strategy when it comes to the draft? You know what? I've, I've been asked that before and I've been fortunate enough where I've been with the club since 2013. So we have picked down towards the bottom of the first round. And I would say that as far as your overall preparedness, nothing is going to really change too much. Obviously the players that you're looking at will differ. You know, if you're picking down further in the draft, you're not going to go and spend a lot of time on guys are going in the top five. You're more or less going to go ahead, see them once, file your report, you know, communicate with our scouts and, and our front office members say, Hey, you know what, this guy's not going to factor for us. So we need to spend time elsewhere. So I think the process itself is more or less still going to be the same. Everything that's going on as far as the research that we do, it's just more or less, less a little bit different because you're not going to be scouting those guys that would necessarily go at the front of the class and you'll be scouting more guys that will more likely be at your pick. And I guess that's a good problem to have. That's where you want to be, right? Hopefully, yes. That's that's <laughs> where we want to be in, in sooner rather than later. Correct. It would still be an incomplete grade, obviously, but you know, as you get further removed from them, how do you feel about the last three draft classes? Um. That's a great question, and I, I never like to get too highs of the highs and lows with the lows. So, obviously, the 2019 class, extremely impressed and happy with, with the results thus far. A lot of those guys are thriving, and, you know, they deserve a lot of the credit, them and our player development coaches. Um, they put in the work, and I'm really ecstatic about what's transpired there. I'm glad that our fans are able to actually see you know, um, Rutch, I know he's he's going to be back soon, hopefully, but see Kyle Stowers um, at our Major League Spring Training game. See Gunnar Henderson and see what, you know, what's on tap for them, maybe potentially sooner or later at Camden Yards. And then the 2020 class, obviously, very encouraged as well. Cody Mayo made tremendous strides last year, and, you know, we talked about how excited we were as far as his potential and his ceiling. Hudson Haskin has looked really good, you know, the last couple of times I've seen him down in Florida. And Jordan Westberg is, has been really dependable on both sides, both in the dirt and in the box. So really excited about what's happened the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, again, not to get too excited, but with how the uh, the lineup played at Delmarva last year, very encouraged by, you know, those results as well. And hopefully they will continue to to thrive um, in, in our player development system. I guess uh, we can get to some listener questions, if that's okay with you. Uh, some of our patrons... Sure had a yep. couple of things they wanted to ask. Um, Vivek wanted to know, what advice would you give to anyone wanting to get a start in sabermetrics slash analytics? That's a great question. Um, I think so much has changed as far as the job market's concerned in baseball. And, you know, when I was breaking into the game, we didn't necessarily have an outlet, so to speak, like Twitter or, um, you know, and having that outlet to get our work out there. So I would say, Start a blog, do your own research, post stuff on Twitter. A lot of, you know, um, front office executives, scouts, um, anal analysts are always looking for stuff out there as far as research, and it's a great tool. Um, there's also a lot of negative stuff out there on that, but, you know, you can definitely use that to your advantage and get your work, you know, showcased. And I've heard numerous stories. In fact, there's a couple guys on our staff that have been hired because of the work that they've put out there you know, on Twitter and, and some research that they've done on a lot of prospects. Luke Seiler. Exactly. He's, <laughs> he's one of them. <laughs> uh, this is also a question from Vivek. Since you were one of the few individuals in the organization that has been part of the old regime, 
how would you compare your work in the Duquette era versus the Elias era? That's also a good question. Um, I think the one thing that hasn't really changed too much is our preparedness. I was fortunate enough to work with a lot of qualified and uh, well-respected baseball men and cross checkers. And they more or less showed me the way on how to be prepared each year and make sure that there's no surprises on draft day. Well, there's always surprises, but you know how to handle those surprises when they do come about. The one thing that has drastically changed is our infrastructure. Uh, D and his team do a tremendous job. We have tools and access to data and information that we just never had previously. So that has been the biggest contrast between the two regimes, just the fact that our internal system has been beefed up and there is a lot of information accessible at our fingertips at the click of a couple buttons. And Chris Franz wanted to know a couple of things about recent developments in baseball, like limiting the draft to 20 rounds. How do you feel about that? Is that frustrating or you feel like you can still get the, the job that you want to do done in that amount of time? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I would say that it, it really hasn't affected us too much. Obviously the rounds um, are cut in half. So, our player listing or the guys we need to scout has also been drastically cut. So there's some good and some bad with it, but um, I'm actually a fan of the 20 round draft. It actually allows me myself and our front office members to get a little bit deeper on some of these guys that we typically wouldn't necessarily have the bandwidth to do. So I do think that there are positives um, and negatives, you know, as far as going from a 40 to 20 round draft, but overall I'm, I'm pleased with, with the developments of that. And he also wanted to know about the elimination of multiple levels of rookie leagues. Uh, how has that affected decisions while drafting? Yeah, I, I mean, in a sense, you know, we're not necessarily looking for fillers anymore. We're looking for guys that are basically just the best players. And um, it really hasn't affected my job too much just because of the fact that, you know, after the 20th round, typically you're trusting your area scouts and they say, yeah, you know, this guy can go out and, and pick the ball up and, and throw the ball across the diamond and he's not going to make us look bad. So it hasn't really affected my um, job significantly on that front. And I just have one more question myself. Um, are you surprised how quickly the depth just filled? I mean, Michael Elias came in and talked about an elite talent pipeline and it seems like that's exactly what's been built in three years or so. So is it surprising how quickly that turned out? Um, <laughs> I would say that, I don't know if it's necessarily surprising because we believe in our process here and, you know, everyone here is on the same page as far as what we're looking to accomplish. Uh, did I think that the results and the feedback that we've been getting on the guys we've drafted and, and signed internationally would be as positive as quickly as they have been? No, most likely not, but um, extremely happy with where things are, but at the same time, we know that we're not going to be satisfied until we turn this thing around and we're in the postseason consecutively in consecutive seasons. So that's the goal. Um, but to answer your question, we believe in our process and not surprised that things have taken off the way they have. Uh, maybe just a little bit surprised, you know, how quickly and the feedback and uh, positive feedback has been. Well, Brad, we really appreciate you taking the time tonight. It's been interesting to hear this insight. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it, guys. All right. Have a good one. Yep. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you. That was Brad Seolik. 
So Brad gave us a lot of really interesting insight there. And uh, before we get on the discussions of the tides, Bob, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on that interview. I love talking to these guys, just getting, you know, the more straight to the top instead of talking to, you know, just in conjecture of ourselves or even these guys that also love talking to from fan graphs and baseball American, all that, just to talk to the guys themselves. Yeah. They're not going to tell you exactly what they're thinking and they're doing, but you definitely get a good idea of, you know, just the mindset and where they're trying to take things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's always good to have the reinforcement about the communication really between scouting and player development, not just on the pro side and the international side, which we've already heard from from Kobe Perez in previous interviews, but also the draft. Yeah, these are the the main ways that we're getting talent into the system. So, yeah, I just I learn so much every time we talk to somebody about this, and and that's what I love about what we're doing here. Hopefully, the listeners are as well. And we'll transition now to the first break camp roster to be announced by an Orioles affiliate. This spring, and that is the Norfolk Tides, who have put out a roster that, as expected, features some pretty talented players, even though a few key names are missing. So Kyle Stowers, Taryn Vavra, Jemai Jones, Nucio Diaz, and Kevin Smith are among some of the big names heading to Norfolk, as well as some players like Ryland Bannon, Alexander Wells, uh, Cody Sedlock, Caden Grenier, and more. This is a good group of players that are down in Norfolk even though you don't have Adley Rutzman. Uh, Kyle Bradis is not going to be in the opening day rotation there, but you are going to have Grayson Rodriguez. So what are your thoughts on this group? Yeah, it's an exciting group for AAA. I think we're, as Orioles fans, mostly used to AAA being, you know, more of a depth place where, like, just guys can be sent down and brought up at will when needed. We started to see that change last year, for sure, as the season went on, but this is a more competitive team. It's mostly the guys that were playing at Bowie last year moved up to AAA here. And I, w- I was surprised to see Kyle Bronovich up here in AAA, and I love it. I think it just goes to show how confident they are in in him. And he had a great season last year, totally deserves it. But a lot of big names. And, uh, yeah, I think you'll eventually see Kyle Bradish and Adley Rutschman here to for at least a couple weeks to start the season. And I think it's going to be a stream that you're going to want to watch whenever you're uh, – opening up your MILB TV app in the evenings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, any Grayson Rodriguez uh, start is a must-watch. That was the case last year at Aberdeen and Bowie, and it'll be the case at Norfolk again. And we'll get to him in a few minutes. But I agree with you about Bronovitz. I'm thrilled that he's going there. I figured that if he went to Bowie, it was not going to be for very long because I didn't really know what else he had to prove there. But this is a guy who... I think we could see in the big leagues this year if, you know, the formula that he has for success last year works, which is throw strikes, have efficient outings, rely on that knuckle curveball as your outpits, and hopefully that is still deceptive against AAA hitters because it certainly worked against high-A and double-A batters. And when you put that sort of mix in there, that's the kind of picture that I feel like, you know, if there's a hole in the Orioles' rotation in June or July – they're looking down at Norfolk and they see here's a guy that throws strikes that can give you five innings. That gives Bronovitz a real chance to reach the majors this year. Oh yeah, absolutely. And actually I would say along the same lines, that's what's most exciting about this roster for me is I, I guess what your uh, rotation will be Rodriguez, uh, Bradish once he's back, Bronovich, Kevin Smith and Alex Wells, any of those guys. I mean, they get hot 
pitch well for a month and a need arises, they're going to go up and get a start. Same with a lot of these bullpen guys. I'm, I mean, you got Ophelki Peralta, Blaine Knight, Cody Sedlock. They could also start or they could make their name in the bullpen and easily get called up at any point. And same with the position players, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, absolutely. Some interesting bullpen arms there. And I do want to get your thoughts on Grayson Rodriguez. He really didn't have anything left to prove at Double A. He dominated there last year. And for really the last month of the season, we were questioning, does he get that bump to Triple A to get an opportunity to prove himself against older hitters? That didn't come, but now he'll get to go to Triple A. What do you want to see him working on before we start to have that conversation that I know is going to happen this summer, which is, when is Grayson Rodriguez going to be promoted? He's got to do something about that batting average fastball. That is his changeup. Oh, wait. I mean, it's a 70-grade pitch. Who who can tell who to trust on that one? No, I, I would like to see just a little more consistent, oh God, consistency with the command. And I don't know if they're going to do it, but maybe let him go six, seven innings, at least a start or two before they plan on bringing him up just to just so he knows that he can do it. We all know he can, but just to go out and do it one time or two times before finally coming up to the majors. Uh, when do you think that will be? I, I, maybe we could place bets on that. I'm thinking end of May, early June, personally. Yeah, you know, we'll have to get our official predictions in next week as part <laughs> of our predictions. So when we have Nick on here, as of right now, I would say mid-June is maybe the earliest we see him. I'm going to guess that... Yeah, he's not going to be stretched out in the way that Kyle Bradis is actually being stretched out, where he's going to stay in Sarasota for a little bit and then presumably go to Norfolk. But I still think you'd like to see him maybe go six innings a couple of times at AAA before you make that move up to the majors. And there's also that factor, too, of how is he going to adjust the ball, which we don't really know what the ball in AAA is going to look like this year, but that has apparently been an adjustment curve for some pitchers. So I'm interested to see if he's really affected by that at all, or if it's he's affected in any measurable way. Yeah, those are great points for sure. I'm just thinking if he's down in AAA just mowing people down with the low to mid two ERA and you're watching major league games in Baltimore with uh, the pitchers that might be doing a little bit less good than that, uh, you might, you might want to rush him up and get him up here. But for sure, I think you're spot on there. Well, the bats right now, you're not looking at Adley Rutzman in Norfolk's opening day lineup, but you still have a really interesting mix. You have some players who are heading back there. They were there late in the year, like Grenier, Kyle Stowers, Neil Diaz, Patrick Dorian, who got a cup of coffee last year and will be back in Norfolk this year. Uh, you also have Jemai Jones there and Taryn Vavra. So two players that could conceivably be playing second base for the Orioles later this year are going to start off down in Norfolk. And I know for me that Vavra is a guy that I'm really excited about. I thought he looked good in Major League camp. And I just think that everything he brings to the table, the advanced plate approach, he doesn't give it bats away, good line drive stroke. And, you know, defensive versatility is something the Orioles have worked on with him. I'm really excited to see what he can do at AAA. Yeah, that might be one of the guys I'm most excited to see play, you know, he played well last year, but just the injuries added up and then he kind of faded down the stretch, but you don't know how much that could be attributed to injuries lingering on. He did look good in camp. You know, he saw his versatility, could play second, could play center field. I saw him playing out there in major league camp, probably could 
play shortstop in a pinch if you really needed him to. So, yeah, I think he's like a good month or two or three away from coming up and displacing the heavy hitters on the Orioles roster like Chris Owings and Rugnet Odor. So, yeah, between him, Bannon playing third, and Jemai Jones is there too, but playing second, maybe a little bit of outfield. It's going to be fun. And this is also good outfield. Um, you have Diaz there. You have Kyle Stowers. You have Robert Newstrom going back. In fact, there's so much outfield depth here that Zach Watson is not starting here in Norfolk, which I know for some of our listeners when that roster dropped today was kind of a surprise. But, you know, we'll talk about Watson in a minute. But just for the players that are there, um, we saw Diaz perform well in camp. Stowers was certainly challenged by the Orioles and had his ups and downs in Major League Camp, but we know he has a ton of potential. So, And Newstrom's coming off a breakout year, and I have to think it's close to the majors. So what are your thoughts on the outfield? Yeah, it's loaded. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised Zach Watson wasn't included here. I would have thought he'd be the starting center fielder in AAA, but if I'm, I'm, I'm happy for Johnny Reiser to get this opportunity. If you remember last year, he was promoted to AA uh, a couple weeks before Watson was. So it kind of makes sense, and you're a Yusniel Diaz injury away from having Watson up or a trade away from one of these guys getting their opportunity at the big leagues, and then Watson can easily fill that gap. But it's a it's a very deep outfield for AAA. I think this is your starting outfield NDH on most nights. So I guess between Stowers and Risers, they can share center and right, and Nerstrom can sit out there and left and try to hit bombs over uh, the shed again in right center field. Yeah, and, and Riser, I think, is a good fit here because he can cover a lot of ground in the outfield, we know, which you need in Norfolk. Showed a little bit of power last year at Bowie, and yeah, he did have a slump in the middle of the summer, but then got hot again at the end of the year. So I think bat-wise, maybe the Orioles felt like he was ready for this jump. Yeah, I think so. I mean, friend of the show obviously came on here. Seems like a really down-to-earth good guy. And, yeah, he had his struggles a little bit at Bowie, especially in the middle of the season, but I feel like he bounced back pretty well. At the very least, he's going to be a gamer up there, give you some solid at-bats, and play good defense, which which is important. We talked, we've talked a lot about these two players in the last two weeks, but what do you want to see from UCL Diaz and Rylan Band in there? There's two things, health and a little bit of consistency. Like, Bannon was ice cold. Lava hot for a couple of weeks and ice cold again, you know, and we don't know again how much injuries played into that and DS struggles, but just stay healthy. And I don't need you come out here with the nine, 950 OPS, but just, just play consistent, play well enough to be the first name on the lips of Michael Ice company when the need arises for someone to bring up. So I'll put this out there as we kind of wrap up this discussion on the tides. If there's one player that you feel like might be kind of an under-the-radar breakout-type pick or maybe a guy that struggled a little bit last year that you feel like is going to improve this year, who would it be? As far as improve, I would say Kevin Smith for me. I think uh, we were doing a little bit of digging. We kind of think we might know why he struggled a little bit last year. And as long as he got his head clear over the offseason, he's working with Justin Ramsey again. We're obviously huge fans of him as the pitching coach here. I could see him and getting adjusted to that ball. You don't know how much that played into it. So I think he has a chance to really earn back our trust as far as a reliable starting pitcher prospect or maybe just 
a better relief prospect than he showed at the end of last season. And the under the radar guy that I think might really surprise some people, I'm going to go with Patrick Dorian. I think he, he really improved a lot from 2019 to 2021. He's a little bit older. He's not have the pedigree of a lot of the guys, but he has a great approach at the plate. He has developed some, some pull power that he hadn't shown before. So I think maybe he gets a chance at some point this season and surprises some people. For a guy that I think is going to bounce back, I think Blaine Knight's going to put up better numbers than he did in his turn at Norfolk last year. He got to the ties, and he really struggled to miss bats once he got there, but he had just had a kid. I think he was late in the year, and it had really been – it had been you know a long season after a pandemic layoff in 2020. I think that if this is a guy that could be successful in a relief role, I don't know if the plan is to piggyback him or exactly how they're going to handle him at the start of this year, but the stuff is there for him to be successful. It really is. So I think that if he can, you know, settle into a good routine, get a fresh start at Norfolk this year, he's going to fare better against AAA hitters. And I'm really, really interested to watch Cole Avila, a minor league rule five pick from the Texas Rangers system. This is someone who has gotten up good write-ups in the past. You look at his numbers last year and what jumps out is that the walk rate was not very good. But again, this is someone who missed bats and, you know, struggled a little bit at AAA, but it's 22 and two-thirds innings over a longer sample size. If he can cut back on the walks a little bit, I think he's a guy that, you know, could be in the mix for a bullpen spot because, you know, if the last few years are any indication, the Orioles are going to need bullpen help as the season goes on. So your hope is that that depth at the top of the system is better than it was last year, which I think it is, but we need to see the games on the field first. Completely agree. Uvila, Vespi, Almengo even is intriguing. Duplan had some success at the major league level last year. Pretty much everyone other than Connor Green and Ryan Hartman, uh, I'm intrigued by. I'm very curious how they're going to use Blaine Knight, Peralta, Sedlock, and David LeBron, I think is a little bit under the radar as a relief option um, as well. So, I don't know if they're going to piggyback uh, certain spots with like three or four innings a piece, or if they're just going to turn a Peralta, Knight, et cetera, fully onto one inning relievers and see how they do. But it's just very interesting to see how they're going to use these guys. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be excited to watch this. And we will be back on Monday with a live episode when we are joined by Nick again and John Mayo from MLB Pipeline. We're going to interview him about MLB Pipeline's assessment of the Orioles system, their top 100 prospect list, get a little bit of prospect coverage there before we jump into our annual opening day predictions. So we'll have that on the back half of the show next week. So a lot of good stuff coming up. In the meantime, continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL and the Birds. Check out Baltimore Sports and Life for all of the latest Orioles coverage, as well as college sports and football. Hop on the message boards, join and discuss with fellow readers of the site, as well as some writers there. And before we wrap up, Bob, any final thoughts? I, did, I hope listeners enjoy that interview as much as I did. Can't uh, say thanks enough to Brad for coming on. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the season getting started. Looking forward to Monday's episode. Yeah, absolutely. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge.